Amen. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew 22. And uh, as you're opening up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, you know, I'm going to just ask a real quick question regarding just some of our actions or our behavior. Uh, how many of us here have used flattery, compliments, or words to control, trap, or manipulate a situation? Let's be honest here. I think most of us have, right? As we look at this or as we think about this, you know, we're going to see several groups that are going to come to Jesus. They're going to come to trap Jesus. They're going to come to entangle Jesus. They're going to come just to trip him up and only to fail and then to realize that they are all fools. And we are all fools when dealing with God, when we think that uh, our wisdom and our knowledge is greater than his, but in reality, his is above and beyond ours. You know, I want to give you one scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. It says, because the foolishness of God, and what does he mean by that? He's referring to the view of the cross by men or anything that man views as foolishness when it comes to God. He says, it's wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so as we have these men and these groups of men that come to Jesus, these conversations will provoke some amazing insight for all of us as Christians. When it comes to God and government, when it comes to God and the resurrection, when it comes to God and man, and when it comes to God's divinity and humanity. And so these are the four points that we're going to be talking about today. And so what I'm going to do, instead of reading the whole chapter, I'm going to just read the section that correlates with the points that I just met, made. And so the first is going to be here in, in, uh, Gen in uh, Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15 through verse 22. We're going to talk about God and government. And of course, this is very important for us. As Christians, we need to understand our role when it comes to God and government. And so let's read that, beginning in verse 15 through verse 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose ins image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's and he said to them render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's when they heard these words they marveled and left him and went their way as I mentioned we're going to be talking about God and government and let me give you some insight when it came to these two groups that are coming to Jesus we have here the Pharisees as well as the Herodians and understand one thing about the Pharisees and the Herodians these were actually enemies of one another and why would they be enemies of one another because these were two different groups that had a different ideology when it came to government with the Pharisees they hated the Roman rule 
See, they were looking for freedom from Rome. And they were actually waiting for the Messiah to flee them, or free them, I should say. But when it came to the Herodians, understand about the Herodians. The Herodians were partial to Rome. See, the Herodians were actually hired by Rome. Remember, King Herod was put there in place to govern the Jews. And so they received from Rome this authority to rule over the Jews. And so when it came to Jesus, though, these enemies were no longer enemies. They became what? Friends with a common goal. And the common goal that they had was to take Jesus down. Think about that. That's all they wanted. They just wanted to take Jesus down. They wanted him out. And so both of them, that are enemies, come together and they attempt to do this. As it says there in verse 15, as we began to read that, they wanted to entangle and to bring him down. And so they buttered up Jesus with flattering words. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to entangle him. And, and so they say to Jesus, they say, you know what? You're not partial to anyone. They're telling Jesus, you know what? You're not partial. It doesn't matter who anyone is. You're not partial to all. And we know that, that the scriptures reveal that. So they were revealing some truth there, that God is not partial to anyone. And so they ask Jesus, they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus knew the wicked plans. He knew their heart, right? And so he tells them, why do you guys test me? You hypocrites. You come with me. You come to me with flattery. And so why are you trying to manipulate me? Why are you trying to, you know what, entrap me? Because I know you're... you're uh, your goal, your mission here. And so, you know, when it comes to flattery, remember one thing about us as Christians, we are to be transparent. We are not to use flattery to manipulate our situation. Look at what it says in Proverbs 20, verse 19. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. So if you do not mean it from the heart, don't say it. It doesn't mean that we can't give flattery, right? If you truly mean it in your heart. But if you don't, then don't say it. And so what does Jesus uh, do or what does he do next? He asks them to bring him tax money. And so they brought him a denarius. And I want you all to, under, to know what a denarius is. A denarius was a Roman silver coin. That's what it was. A Roman silver coin. And the Roman silver coin actually had the image of the emperor. And so this is why Jesus could say, bring me the coin. And he begins to ask him, well, whose image is on it? And every emperor, I want you to know that they would put their image on the denarius. So here, this Caesar, they say it's Caesar. And so immediately Jesus responds by saying then, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God, that are God's. And immediately when Jesus says that, they marveled at his answer. They said, you know what, this, look at the wisdom that he has. And why they were marveling is because they knew the intentions of the, of the Pharisees and the Herodians. See, they were trying to trap Jesus into saying yes or no. And let me explain why this would be a trap. 
If Jesus would have said only yes and paying taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees, the Herodians, uh, the Jews who, or I should say not the Herodians, but the Pharisees and the Jews who hated Rome would have attacked Jesus. They would have said, wait up, you know what? I mean, you're telling us to do this, yet, you know what, we, you know, we shouldn't have to do this. And then, of course, if he would have said no, then the Herodians as well as the Romans would have came after Jesus and they would have attacked Jesus. And so he gave them no authority, no direction to attack him. He didn't incriminate himself. And so this is why everyone was just, wow, look at this man. He is filled with wisdom. He's, he's filled with great insight. And for us, he really gives us the insight as to God and government. And so now we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about God and government when it comes to a Christian. Because God, Jesus is giving us this insight. Again, this isn't my insight. This is Jesus' insight when it comes to God and government. When it comes to God, let's talk about God first. Render to God the things that are God's. Okay, as Christians, we're called to what? Obey the commands of the Lord. See, if we love him, we obey him, right? John 14, verse 15. How can you say you love God and not do as his word says? Remember this, love and obedience go hand in hand. That's the way it is. It's just love and obedience. When you, say, when you love somebody, you're going to do as they say. And, and this is what we know when it comes to the Lord. If we truly love God, we're going to do as his word says. Let's move on and now talk about government. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is what he says. According to the Lord's insight, we are called to be law-abiding citizens. Remember that as Christians, we are called to be law-abiding citizens. We are called to obey the laws of the land, including financial laws. This is what Jesus is saying. So when a Christian breaks the laws of the land or commits a crime, he is not only disobeying the law of the land, he is also disobeying the command of God. Remember that. See, in the U.S., if we call the U.S. of A our home, then we are called to abide by the laws of the land, of the U.S. Tony announced, Pastor Tony announced, that we're going to Mexico. When we go to Mexico, understand this, when we go on our missionary trip, we are called to abide by the laws of Mexico. See, we cannot be a people that break the laws of the land and say we are still Christians because, see, we're disobeying the word of God. See, in general, we cannot be Christians who break the law of the land. There's a total disconnect here. And I want to give you further clarity because Paul talks about this so that we can understand as Christians we are called to obey the laws. Romans 13 Verses 1 and 2, it says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Okay? For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Do you see what the Lord is saying? 
He's saying here, we are, uh, the authority, the laws have been placed there by God. And if we resist that authority and we resist the ordinance of God, then we will bring judgment upon ourselves. Think about that. And then he goes on to talk about the financial obligation that we have as Christians. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending, continually speaking of government, to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Remember this, as Christians, we cannot be promoting illegal activity. As Christians, we cannot be promoting illegal activity. We cannot be condoning illegal practices. Then what are we doing? We're coming against the Word of God. There is only one exception, and I want to make this clear. There is only one exception when it comes to breaking the law of the land. Remember that. There's only one exception. Every other justification, every other excuse, if you're breaking the law, then you're breaking the Lord's command. The one exception that I want to share with you is if the law tells us to break the laws of God, then we can resist and no longer obey. Remember what I said. That's the only exception. That if the law tells us to break the laws of God, then we can resist and then we can break that command. And how do I prove this? When we look at Acts chapter 5 verse 29, it says that we ought to obey God rather than man. So we have the authority here and the authority is from God's word. It's not my word. It is the authority of God where he tells us that we are called to obey God rather than man when it comes to breaking the laws of God. <clears throat> I want to give you some examples here. If we are told to recant or deny Jesus, we don't have to, we won't. When we are told to compromise our beliefs against the word, we won't. Whoever is asking us or commanding us to not do his word, we won't. Let me remind you of something. Remember in Genesis 1.26, it says there that let us make man in our own image. I want to be clear here. You and I bear the image of God. And if we bear the image of God, we are to do as God says. When it comes to the coin or the dollar bill, even the dollar bills today have what? The presidents of our great nation. And when we look at these bills, right, it is a reminder that for us, we are also to obey the laws of the land. And so we have here, again, the Lord that is teaching this because of this when it comes to God and government and how we are to be with both. Okay? So now let's look at the second point, God and the resurrection. And so we're going to read beginning in verse 23 to verse 33. It says here, The same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there, 
were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also and the third even to the seventh. Last of all the women died the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her and she answered and said to them you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So now let's talk about God and the resurrection. Let me give you some insight. The Sadducees, the, the people that we're reading about now, the Sadducees are not the same group or religious people like the Pharisees. They're completely different. Though they were political and regulating the relations of Rome with the Jews, they were not like the Herodians though. Let me share some of their beliefs so you, you can see just the deception and the hypocrisy of these the Sadducees, they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the rewards or penalties after death. In other words, they believed that there was no hell. And they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, as stated here. And so they give Jesus this ridiculous story only to discredit the resurrection. That's all they were trying to do. They weren't really trying to gained knowledge or insight they were just trying to discredit the resurrection and so the story is as follows if a man dies with no children and he marries or she marries all of her brothers then whose wife will she be in heaven i want to give you some insight here when it comes to what we see going on here the the laws of God in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, it obligates the Jews to marry their brothers' wives who had no children in order to carry on the family name. Remember, they were into just generation after generation. They wanted to make sure that the names of, uh, of the men were carried on, the, the names of the families were carried on. And so they make up this ridiculous story about a woman who goes through seven husbands. Can you believe that? I mean, how ridiculous is that, right? For a woman to survive seven husbands, unless she's like this superwoman, right? This supergirl. And so the question is, whose wife is she in the resurrection? And so immediately Jesus responds. He says, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God, and to them, this was a real shocker because for the Sadducees, they were the experts of the Torah. They were the experts of the written law. And to say that they don't know the scriptures was humiliating to the, uh, to the Sadducees. But again, Jesus knew their motives just like he knew the motives of the Pharisees. He knew they weren't sincere and they only wanted to mock Jesus and his teachings. And as we read there in verse 30, 
It says that in the resurrection, he gives us two points, insight again on two things. There is no marriage as we have on earth, and two, we will be like angels. What does he mean by this? Let's talk about the no marriage in heaven. There is going to be no marriage in heaven is what he says. See, when we talk about marriages, remember this, your marriage here on earth is, is all there's going to be. When we leave and when we pass on to heaven, we are not going to be married to our spouses. And so as we realize this, right, as there's some of us in here that are constantly at odds with our spouse, enjoy your spouse, love your spouse, cherish your spouse. When it comes to wives, love your husbands. When it comes to, to I'm, I'm sorry, to husbands, love your wives. And when it comes to, to, to wives, respect your husbands. Love one another, submit to one another. Because in heaven, you're no longer going to be married to them. And God gave you an amazing spouse so that you can enjoy, so that you can cherish her, so that you can enjoy this oneness with her. Because when you go to heaven, it's not going to be like that. See, in heaven, he says we're going to be like angels. And let me clarify one thing. Jesus never said we will become angels. He said we will be like angels because he was referring to the idea of marriage. Remember this, angels do not reproduce in heaven. There's no reproduction in heaven. And the same thing with us. When we go to heaven, we're not going to be reproducing children in heaven. It doesn't happen that way. It only happens here on earth. And so, as certain people will say, we, you know what, I can't wait, or my husband, I know he's an angel, and he's coming down, and he's helping me. I mean, that's a lie. There's, we don't become angels. We, we only become like angels in reference to the idea of marriage. But the, idea, the, the insight that I really want to focus on is really God and the resurrection, Okay, God and the resurrection. Because this is critical when it comes to, again, doctrine. Jesus is revealing so much doctrine here as he was speaking to the, Phar the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. Jesus reminds, first of all, the Sadducees as he's talking to this group now. He says, remember, you guys are experts of the Torah. Don't you remember what God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that's what was repeated here in verse 32. In essence, Jesus is saying, there is a resurrection, and the God that we serve, or the God that, the, the, the true God is the God of the living. See, God was not saying here, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, to use I was would mean that they had passed away. It's a past tense, right? I was their God because they no longer live. But Jesus is saying, I am their God. See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were actually living because they were alive. Even though they had died, they still lived, right? They were in that compartment of, 
of, of hell, right, of, of Sheol. And so because they were in that compartment, they were still alive there. And so this is why he could say, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob because they are alive. Let me remind you of what Jesus said to Lazarus. Remember when Martha and Mary had called to Jesus and Jesus took his time and and so he finally arrives and Lazarus is dead. And so when he spoke to Martha, he said this in John chapter 11, verse 25. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, Jesus reminds us all that we will all rise from the dead. For those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, every single one of us will rise from the dead and we will live. This is why Jesus is saying that he is the God of the living. And for us, this brings us great comfort because we know that though we may die, as he told Martha, we shall what? We shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, we shall never die. This is why our God is the God of the living. He is not the God of the dead because you and I will live throughout eternity. See, there are many people that believe in total annihilation, just like the Sadducees. They don't believe in hell. Annihilation means total destruction in the afterlife. I was just talking to somebody just a couple of days ago, and he says, you know what? I know that, you know what? When it comes to hell, you know what? I don't believe that there's a hell. I believe that we're just going to go into, you know, we're just going to be completely destroyed. There's nothing out there. And usually the ones that believe that are the ones that are practicing sin because they don't want to see themselves going to hell. And so they believe that, you know what? As long as I can live the way I want on earth, nothing's going to happen to me in the afterlife. And this individual that I'm talking about was practicing sin, so much sin that, you know what, that he didn't care. And so, of course, you have this doctrine of annihilation. But when it comes to hell, Jesus talks so much about hell. You know, I'll give you a couple of scriptures from Matthew 25, 26. He talks about this. And also in Revelation 20, when he talks about the great white throne judgment, throwing them all into the lake of fire. And so as we have this, remember, it's important that, 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 you know what, that we understand that we serve the God of the living and we ourselves, though we may die, will rise. And so when the multitudes heard this, heard the response from Jesus, they were astonished. And so now let's talk about God and man. So we're going to talk about now the third point, God and man. From verses, we'll read from verses 34 to 40, it says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, telling him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the Pharisees, let's look at the background information here. We, the Pharisees saw that the Sadducees were silenced. 
And so they were silenced just prior to that a few minutes ago. And so they decide to come back for more. And now one of them is a lawyer. And this lawyer asked Jesus a question. But again, it was only to test Jesus. Again, there is no real sincerity, but he's only speaking to entangle and trap Jesus. Again, these guys don't give up. Just the same that you see today, right? There's a lot of people that don't give up. We know the enemy doesn't give up. And so they keep coming back for more and more. But when it comes to Jesus, they're only coming back for more pain. Remember that. And so the lawyer asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says the first, or I, he, I should say the, the greatest commandment covers the first portion of the commandments. And he says there, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Mark chapter 12, uh, Mark 12, 30 actually adds, I'm sorry, he adds strength. So when it came to Matthew, Matthew said to love the the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Mark asked, with all your strength. So what we have here is really just an encompassing of all that we are. All that we are is to love the Lord our God. And then the second uh, uh, portion of, of, of the greatest commandment is, is really comes from the, por- uh, the second portion of the commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. But when we listen to this question from this lawyer, understand one thing. Again, he was trying to trap Jesus. And then because of this, God gives us the insight when it came to the simple summary of the entire law. And it, it, it is all summarized in four words, and it is what? Love, right? Love the Lord your God and love man as you love yourself. I'm going to talk about these two points because they're very important. I think that, that we should understand. Loving God is a decision we make, Right? You make the choice as to loving God. But the magnitude of your love is also a choice. Remember that. How much am I going to pour into this relationship? It's just like a marriage, right? How much are you going to pour into your relationship with God? How much time are you going to spend with God in prayer? Think about that. You know what? If I truly love the Lord, I want to speak to Him as much as I can, just like I want to speak to spouse that I want to spend a lot of time with them and I want to speak to them the same thing you know as you pour into your relationship and in allowing your spouse to talk to you do we want God talking to us and if so then are we reading the word of God think about that how much are you pouring into your relationship with God how much of a priority has he become how much do you love him what is that magnitude of your love How much of an effort do I make in in hanging out with others who love God by going to church? You know, and these things, remember this, it's not that you have to do them. It's that we want to do them as Christians. That's the key to it all, right? Again, you have the free choice. You have the free will to do as you wish. And how much do I want to pour into my relationship with God? See, that's up to us. But I think the second portion, now I think this is a more difficult one. The decision to love man or others the way God says can be very unnatural. See, it is not so very natural to man 
to love others as we love ourselves. See, this takes more of a supernatural type of love. And what I mean by this is that we need the assistance of God, from God to love others as we love ourselves. And this is why God, as, as God is just so amazing and so wise in all of us, this is why he says that the first thing is loving God. Because he knows that if you love God, then guess what? He's going to pour out his love in you. See, loving God will give you the ability to love others as you love yourself. I don't think I need to convince any of you how much you love yourself. Okay? I think if we're honest to ourselves, who consumes your mind more? Ourselves. Who is the first person you look at in a group picture? Yourself, right? You want to see how you looked. You're concerned about your appearance. Who is the first person you take care of? Yourself. Remember this. Before Christ, self was all that mattered. But after coming to Christ, we are commanded to love others as we love ourselves. And I think that we all need help loving others the way we love ourselves. Don't you, have, don't you agree? We need help. We can't do it this way. We can't do it. There's always, you know, the love of others is a struggle. It's not an easy thing for us to do. And so this is why as we love God, God pours out his heart, his, his spirit upon us. And he pours out his love within us by his spirit, as it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Let me remind you of this. Can I love others the way I love myself or the way God loves me? Think of that. Can I love others the way God loves me or the way I love myself? You know, these are like a testing for us. Look at this one. Can I forgive others the way I've been forgiven? Think about that. Can I forgive others the way I have been forgiven? Can I not talk about people because I don't want them talking about me? Think about that. Can I help people the way I would like to be helped? See, when I give you these things, right, these are more of some people call them respectable sins. Some people call them silent sins because you can't easily see them. But see, when you love somebody, you're able to forgive. When you love somebody, you're not going to talk about them. When you love somebody, you're going to cover a multitude of sins. See, this is the type of love that God wants us to have for others, and it's a supernatural love. Because you can't do it on your own. This is why we have God who pours out his love upon us so that we can love this way. You know, I shared this at the married couples. You know, I spoke on the worm. And for the married couples that were there, I think you can remember this I know that there's uh, not a whole lot of them that were there but there's a few of you that were there remember Jesus when he went to the cross 
When he went to the cross, he said nothing. He didn't retaliate. He didn't fight back. Why? Because he did it because he loved. He did it because he loved everyone. How many of you have ever thought of yourselves as a worm? There's one. I think some of you that have learned that were in the teaching are trying to practice this, but none of us ever desire to be a worm. Even kids, when they see a worm, they're like, ugh. Did you know that Jesus became a worm for us? He himself said it in Psalm 22. He says, I am not a man. I am a worm. Why would he refer to himself as a worm? What does a snake do when you attack a snake? It strikes back. But a worm, what does a worm do when you attack a worm? It does nothing. It does nothing. This is the example that Jesus left us. Remember that. You know, as we think about loving others, it's a supernatural love. It's a love that we can't do on our own. But God can do it through us. And if you love God as Christians, we must confess and we must walk in this type of love. Yielding to the, His Spirit that lives in us if He is living in you. Remember that. The fourth and final section we're going to talk about is God's divinity and humanity. And it's here in verse 41 through verse 46. It says, while the Pharisees were, gathering, uh, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare ask a question anymore. You know, as we look at this, right, God wants to reveal his divinity as well as his humanity. See, Jesus now decides to ask them a question. They're no longer asking him a question. Jesus is now asking them a question. And he asks this question only to reveal both his divinity and his humanity to these. And for us that are now learning. The question is, what do you think about the Christ and whose son is he? And the Pharisees immediately answered the son of David. So Jesus asked him, how then does David call him Lord? And he quotes there from Psalm 110, 1. Let me share this with you. When we read this, it can be very confusing. The Lord said to my Lord, what does he mean there? I mean, what Lord and my Lord? And when we look at Psalm 110 in the Hebrew, the Lord, the first Lord, when he says, the Lord in the Hebrew, it is the word Jehovah. So he's talking about God there. Said to my Lord, which David is now referencing, Jesus. And this Lord word here is Adonai, his master. And so David is saying, you know what? 
that God said to my Lord, which is Jesus, sit at my right hand. So the question was, if David calls him Lord, how is he the son of David? And I want to share this with you. Jesus was hoping to stir in them their acknowledgement that Jesus is both God and man. See, Jesus is both God and man. In other words, speaking of his divinity, he is God because he always existed. And his humanity as the son of God that came in the flesh. But they could not see it. They could not acknowledge that, you know what, that he could actually be the Messiah because they didn't want to acknowledge that he would come as a man. And this is why Jesus would have asked him that question. Then who is he talking about? See, for us as Christians, we've come to a place of acknowledging that God is both man, 100% man, and 100% God. Again, this is doctrine. And remember what Jesus told Thomas in John 20, verse 29? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You and I are in this blessed category because we had not seen him, but yet we believed. See, an important part of doctrine is believing that Jesus is in fact God. And this is a key to, for our salvation. Because there are many religions as well as cults that do not accept the teaching that Jesus is God. But as Jesus said to us, and as his word reveals to us, Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then, of course, John also wrote in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is given to us by John, but look at what Jesus says of himself. I and my Father are one. John 10, 30. He is both God and he is both man. And yet, these Pharisees, they didn't want to see it. And we know the judgment that came upon them. We know in AD 70, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple gone, millions of Jews were killed. For us, we have the truth. And as we spoke on these four points, I want to share this with you. If you have struggled in these areas when it comes to God and government, obeying the laws of the land, doing what is legal in this country, if we are disobeying the word of God as he tells us to obey the laws of the land, then it's time to confess. When it comes to the resurrection, if we have issues believing in the afterlife and believing that we will live and we will rise. Or if we have issues loving our neighbors as ourselves. Or in believing that God is both man and God. 
then it's time to confess these things and acknowledge the truth that Jesus has taught us this morning. And so I'm going to give you all an opportunity, an opportunity to...